last month I was traveling on vacation, and so I, uh, I forgot to make a car payment. Now, this may happen to you from time to time where you're like, you know, summertime, you forget to pay a bill or two, and then you start getting either emails or, in my case, some voicemails and texts, and I didn't know why I was getting these texts. Uh, in fact, the, the, the cryptic voicemails I was getting was, hi, Mr. Ryer, this is Honda Finance. Would you please call us? Thank you. And then that's all I'd get. And, and so when I went to pay bills this month, I realized, oh, last month I didn't send them. Perhaps that's why they're calling. And so I just grabbed my phone and I hit redial. And uh, on the other line was, hi, this is Matt. And, you know, and I'm like, hi, Matt. Um, I, I believe that I've missed a payment. And he goes, well, Mr. Ryer, we have your phone number here in the system, sure. And so he begins to say, well, how can we make a payment for that? And I said, well, how about I just give you my debit card? That'll be fast. And he's like, great. And so I go, I'm just like pecking off the numbers. And then I realize, I don't know who Matt is. And I really don't know that I'm talking to Honda. And so I said to him, excuse me, Matt, um, how do I know you are you? And he, and he answered appropriately, well, listen, go to the bill and then call the number on the top of the bill and then you can get, actually, you'll know that it's Honda. And I thought, okay, but this is how easy it is to have somebody steal your crud. This is how it happens. You, you don't even think. Now, maybe you're young and savvy and so you're thinking, oh, sad old guy in his 50s. Used a typewriter in college. You know, you're thinking, you know, all of those things. And that's fine. Condescend to me if you must. But I would say critical in this age of, uh, uh, of technology is, is having the ability to verify, to confirm, is this real? This is ultimately what is taking place in the entirety of John chapter 9. The Pharisees are trying to confirm that Jesus isn't legitimate. The people are trying to discern whether Jesus' healing power is actually from God. And this blind guy and his family, this formerly blind guy and his family, are caught in the middle. We've been looking at this story for the last couple of weeks for, with the purposes of not only seeing that God will answer prayer that he desires to move in our lives. But even today, it's looking at practically what does the Christian experience um, really have for a person who's genuinely encountered Christ. As I walked through this story with a friend this week, I was struck by a couple of portions of the narrative. A, blind, a man blind from birth is approached by Jesus. Jesus seeks him out. And then when he does healing, he, he spits in the ground and puts mud pies on his eyes. And that's an important note in the whole discussion of biblical study of descriptive versus prescriptive passages. Um, and a prescriptive passage is where the scriptures tell you, you must do it this way. The descriptive ones are ones where Jesus does something like mud pies. And that's not a declarative that we're supposed to do that. We're just going to go ahead and follow James 5 and anoint you with oil and pray for healing if that's okay. Mud pies are not God's plan for how we would go about doing this. 
Jesus does this really funky sort of healing ritual, and the guy goes to the pool of Siloam, washes it off. Now the culture is a buzz. People want to know, how did it happen? He's the, the blind guy can see. Are we sure it's the blind guy? And then somebody decides, hey, I get an idea. Let's tell the, her the, her the Pharisees. They're, uh, they're crazy about all this, so they get involved, and now they're put together their own little independent council, and they're going after this guy, and they can't validate him. They're like, oh, sure, you were born from birth. Let's go find his parents. Let's drag his parents into this thing. And, and now his parents are going, oh, we don't want anything to do with this. And, and so he develops, the, the guy who was made whole, develops this real you know, courage all of a sudden. He's, now he's like getting a little bit psyched because he knows the miracle really happened. And so he begins to stand up for himself. The end of this thing is the Pharisees putting distance between him and them and declaring once again that Jesus can't be the Son of God. And then this guy worshiping Jesus. There's so much we can learn from this passage. First thing I noticed and that I want to unpack for us today is the real fear that many Christians around the world experience as they testify publicly or identify publicly with Jesus. Fresh off a trip to a, uh, a Muslim-ruled country, our missions team and the missionaries we support as a church there can testify to this being a reality. And as well, Christians who are part of the cultural mechanisms, the popular cultural mechanisms, and, and, and a variety of things that are in the big, cool city centers of our nation and in Western culture, they'll, they'll tell you the same thing, that it's, it's a fairly dicey experience uh, identifying as a Christian who believes what Scripture says. Uh, that you have to be super careful. That there's, a, there's, a, there's a daunting fear that something could go sideways for you career-wise or, or socially if the people that you hang with misunderstand what you believe or pigeonhole you a certain way. The second thing that I want to look at today is, uh, is the notion of the progressive growing relationship with Christ as I see that in this guy's experience. He, he, he starts, has a connection with Jesus, but you see over the course of the ninth chapter of John, his evolution, if you will, from knowing a little bit about Jesus to having an experience with Jesus to worshiping Jesus. And I see our experience in that too. Let's begin with what we must confront. And all of us would fall in this category that we must confront the fear of being cast out. In the text, the parents get brought into this experience and, and they are holding their son at a distance. We know this is our son. We know he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened to his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. This is the tenor of what they're saying. We don't want anything to do with this. We do not want to be associated with his experience at all. He'll speak for himself. And parenthetically, we're given the benefit of John explaining that they feared the Jews. Now, the Jews, were the, they're speaking of specifically the cultural leadership, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ones who not only ruled the, 
the religious life of Israel, but culturally they played this huge role as well. There is a lot of similarities between the experience that many were having in this culture and what others have in Islamic ruled cultures of our day where there is an interweaving of state and church and culture in such a way that it's not as simple as just saying, I believe this different from you all. It's a, it's a threat on every level to, to associate with somebody else. So the parents now are having to say, we don't want to get thrown out of the synagogue, and so you just have to ask him, he's of age. They were afraid they'd lose socially religiously, if they associated too closely with their son, who is now being linked to Jesus. I'd like to, for a second, imagine the pain of the man, the son, the man born blind. This has been a tough road for him. Not just not seeing, that would be a challenge. How difficult that would make education. He clearly was begging, which meant that there weren't a lot of family members saying, it's okay if you're blind, you can live with us. He was considered by the culture, erroneously, having been at some level responsible for his blindness, his sin, his parents' sin. So he's got all of this garbage in his system, and then he discovers that his parents care more about the social circles in which they run than standing with him and rejoicing about what has happened and what Jesus has done for him. This has to be one more point of family contention for him. And family division as a result of identification with Christ was not uncommon. As a matter of fact, it was so common that Jesus announced, I've come and this is what's going to happen. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39, Jesus says this. Now remember, he's the Prince of Peace. And he is talking about the ramifications of what believing in him does. Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And the person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, family division is likely going to be, at least certainly in this culture, a cost of discipleship. It's fairly common today to have people who have this experience. They get raised in a particular denomination that their parents are really excited about, and then they change Christian denominations, and, and it can create a bit of havoc in the family. You've seen my big fat Greek wedding, right? So this happens. This isn't just in the, in the first century. People are very attached culturally to their, the religion of their family and their origin. And so if you decide to blaze your own trail as a Christian with your own nuances to how you're going to worship and what particular aspects you're going to emphasize in your faith, that can rub family the wrong way. Jesus knew that the implications, though, of believing in him, they themselves were going to upset others. The gospel itself, without necessarily 
attaching it to any cultural things, the gospel itself will offend. When many find out that you believe a person must ask for forgiveness for their sins and look to Jesus' sacrifice as the way this forgiveness is made possible, they might be offended on multiple levels. First of all, the notion of needing forgiveness is something that many a person would be offended by, particularly in our culture. Your faith in Jesus is saying that we all are broken and fallen and naturally rebellious against the commands of Scripture. And frankly, if you aren't secure in your salvation, that admission is going to feel threatening and it may make people react strongly against you. Even if you're nice about it, you're just saying, I think this is what I believe. And just the idea that you believe that they're broken and fallen would offend them. Secondly, people are offended by the suggestion that Jesus would need to die in their place. I'm not that bad. Why, does, why doesn't God just forgive us? I mean, I forgive people and I don't require a sacrifice. What's the big need for a substitute? In many ways, what people are saying is, I believe I'm entitled to a God who would not be offended by my sins in that way. The final implication of your belief in Jesus is what will happen to a person if they reject Jesus' offer of salvation. Even if you're the most gracious person in the world, the kindest person in the world, the most gentle person in the world, explaining it with the intellect of Tim Keller and the gentleness of, I don't know, somebody gentle. Then, I don't know anybody gentle. Uh, people are still going to be put off because the ramifications, the implications of what Jesus says means that they're going to spend eternity separated from God in hell. Jesus says this in John chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. You'll have to listen along or read the scriptures in your pew. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus says in John chapter 3 that we need forgiveness, and he needed to die in our place. So why is this aspect of Jesus' teaching so unappealing uh, and some theological progressives find this so offensive that they outright reject the need for Jesus as atoning sacrifice? And I've heard some say that the reason they're so sensitive to it is that culturally they're just worried that people are going to think that the Christian, the Christian faith is exclusive. Now if you mean is only certain cool people get into the club, then the Christian faith is not exclusive. But if you mean the Christian faith is open to anybody, regardless of their socioeconomic status, their country of origin, their family of origin, wherever you come from, whatever you've done, the gospel, Christianity, is available to you. It's offered to you and yours. It's salvation is offered to everyone. It's not exclusive at all. But it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't expect 
that we are going to have to humbly go to Him and ask for forgiveness. I've heard some who've said on one hand, I don't want to offend people and have them feel like I think less of them because I'm excluding them. I've heard these same people in the very next breath exclude people who didn't agree with them politically. Isn't that odd? In this politically charged time in which we live, people are willing to make complete fools of themselves in the name of stating and defending something that is likely imperfect, namely their political opinion and the supposed solution to the world's problems. Yet many of these same folks, when asked to publicly stand and be associated with Jesus, or even talk about the need for forgiveness for, from sins, the courage that they demonstrated in boldly condemning their least favorite politician all of a sudden evaporates. I've thought about this some because I've seen that in my own life. It's easy to march. I've been to some marches. I've been to a civil rights march. I've been to a pro-life march. When you're with that many people, it just feels empowering and you just feel like, yeah, we win. You know, and there's just something crazy. The might makes right kind of takes over in your head. It's far less frightening. And it's really a numbers game, too, when you think about it. I mean, our presidential elections, let alone our normal elections, are decided on relatively slim margins. So there's a really good chance that you're always going to be able to count on 50% of the people to agree with you politically. And that's a lot better odds than if you're a Christian. If you are a Scripture-believing Jesus has resurrected from the dead. You need forgiveness, and Christ is the only way you're going to get that from God, kind of Christian. You are a minority. Don't let anybody tell you any different. You, if you really believe that, you are in a small group of folks, and that can be frightening. You, if you're the only Christian in your office or the only person in your family who's a believer Sometimes that can feel really disconcerting. And as a Christian, we're called to stand for Christ. And if you stand up for something like the resurrection of Jesus or the exclusivity of Christian faith, it could get you mocked. In the early 20th century, during World War II, there was a group of Lutheran theologians and pastors and lay people who formed what was called the Confessing Church. These were the people that were going to stand against the uh, removal of certain Christian doctrines from the heart of Christianity. They were also going to be a group of people that were not going to affiliate with the German government. And so the Confessing Church in Germany became outlawed at one level. One of its adherents, a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was an author and a theologian and uh, wrote a great book called The Cost of Discipleship. Uh, he, through a relative and friend, decided to participate in a plot to assassinate Hitler. Was, the plot was foiled and then he was executed for his, his works. He knew quite a bit about standing boldly amongst difficult circumstances. 
as a Christian who was willing to adhere to Christian doctrine in a, a country that had lost its bearings, he wrote this in The Cost of Discipleship, quote, the messengers of Jesus will be hated to the end of time. They will be blamed for all the division which rends cities and homes. Jesus and his disciples will be condemned on all sides for undermining family life and for leading the nation astray. They will be called crazy fanatics and disturbers of the peace. The disciples will be sorely tempted to desert their Lord. But the end is also near, and they must hold on and preserve until it comes. Only he will be blessed who remains loyal to Jesus and his word unto the end. This is the call of the Christian. We must confront that inner fear that we have that we're going to be cast out and recognize that Jesus has the right to expect us to be faithful to him. He created us. He is one who is deserving of our worship. And this is the other thing I, I really recognized in this passage as I studied it this week with a buddy of mine. And that was not only do we need to confront this fear of being cast out, but we need to confirm again the fruit of being a Christ follower. You see it in the man who was born blind's life. He definitely finds himself on the side of Jesus by coming to some simple logical conclusions, which is people don't magically heal people if they aren't from God. And this is what he says to them in verses 33 through 38. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you, would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out, and having found him, said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, you've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Some beautiful parts of this passage of Scripture. Uh, one is uh, that Jesus didn't wait for this guy when he was cast out of the synagogue to look for him. Jesus heard that this guy had been treated this way and determined to go find him. See, and this is the heart of Jesus. He, he, he has great empathy and compassion for where you are. He is pursuing you. This is the testimony of Scripture. We also see that when he finally got around to talking with the guy, and the guy asked him, who is he? It's not ironic and mostly intentional for Jesus to say, You've seen him. In other words, this guy hadn't seen a whole lot in his life. And now he's standing face to face. He can actually see Jesus. And then I also recognize that one of the things that's remarkable about a genuine encounter with Jesus is that people will worship Jesus. When you really experience him, when he touches your life, when it really happens... You are prone to worshiping. On two initial points, the Jews were incorrect in their assessment. And I'm sure we could catalog a bunch others. First, they falsely insisted that the law forbade divine healing on the Sabbath. 
in actuality, they had created a set of rules about what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. And even those, in those rules, those extra-biblical Talmudic rules, there was no mention of divine healing. So even in their own rules, it wasn't there, but it certainly isn't in the Old Testament. And secondly, when they pressured the healed man, they revealed another false assumption. I love, I love it because it reveals how silly they were. They said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. This is the equivalent of saying to somebody or asking somebody, tell me the truth. I look good in this outfit, right? You're, you're basically asking them not for the truth. You're telling them, tell me what I want to hear. I want to hear that I'm, I look good. They're saying to this guy, listen, give glory to God. Tell us what we already know. This is a bad guy. They're trying to box him in. They don't want to hear the truth. They want their preconceived hopes and prejudices to be confirmed. And he refused to be put in their box and deny what was obvious to him that Jesus had to be a prophet. The purpose for divine healing in the Old Testament was to validate this person is speaking, thus saith the Lord. Jesus had to be a prophet. It was confirmed to this guy. I know I was born blind. I know now I see. In the same way, when you know who Jesus really is, when you understand that you are right with God, at peace with God, right this second, you can't be any more at peace with God than you are right now. When that dawns on you, when you realize your life is bound up with Jesus, one of the first characteristics that will manifest itself is a boldness. For him, you could say it was spirit-empowered boldness, but he didn't know what the Holy Spirit was and who the Holy Spirit was in his life at that juncture. I would imagine that in his case, as is the case in many of our lives, it's, it's about a desperation that says, I, I know what I know. I know too much. I'm not going to like contradict what I know to be true just to get along with you all. From my standpoint, I know if Jesus doesn't, didn't pay for my sins that I'm in a heap of trouble. I mean, I, I know that my life, my peace with God, my eternal destiny is all bound up in the forgiveness of sins in Christ and the righteousness that he's imputed to those and given to those and credited to those who believe, who believe. Jesus said as much in Mark 8, verses 34 through 38, he said this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The man born blind was in one sense a very fortunate man. How, you might ask? Well, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount terms, a person who is poor in the spirit inherits the world. 
It's only the people with a lot to lose that are reluctant to let their lives go and gratefully receive Christ. This man was an outcast long before he was cast out. He didn't consider his life so valuable that he wouldn't gladly trade it for the privilege of relationship with his creator and the rescuer of his life. Rich people, culturally accomplished people, people who think they have a lot to lose, like the rich young ruler that Jesus encountered who walked away sad, we're the ones that feel like we've got a lot to risk. See, the, the poor in spirit, they're going to inherit the earth. A second fruit that comes from a, genu a genuine follower of Christ is this, and that's what we mentioned before, a heartfelt submission and worship. See, knowing who we are and who God is is critical if we're going to have a relationship that's filled with praise for Jesus. Knowing that we don't deserve, we're not entitled to his grace is important for us to remember that he freely gave it. Knowing that Jesus has completely and utterly saved you if you're a child of his. Knowing that is critical if you're going to be somebody who worships him. But more than that, knowing him by the presence of his spirit in your life, encouraging him and worshiping him and, and, and really encountering him, all of these things are a part of intimacy with Jesus. The blind man may have seen him, but the scriptures say that blessed are those of us who don't see and believe. We, we, we have the Holy Spirit. We're going to study this in the weeks ahead in John 14, 15, 16. We're going to, we're going to see the reality of the, the Christian experience is that, that God lives within you by his spirit. And this intimacy is something you can foster. And it produces a worship. And if you or I not, doesn't regularly, we don't regularly sense or are, be, or are struck by this notion of being marvelously rescued from our sins and graciously provided for in spite of ourselves, if this doesn't produce a, a breaking into song or if you're not a song singing kind of person, a, uh, at least a, a, a praise from your lips in, in prayer, expressions of praise to God, you have to begin to ask, has a real encounter with Jesus taken place in my life? If we're not amazed by his grace, the scriptures would say something's wrong. Confirming the fruit of being a Christ follower is saying, have I really had a genuine encounter that produces any type of worship in me? Do I see myself in a relationship to Jesus properly? Do I recognize that I need him to show me more of who he is as he did the man born blind? Author Jen Wilkin, she's a terrific writer, penned this recently, quote, God is self-existent self-sufficient, eternal, immutable, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipotent, sovereign, infinite, and incomprehensible. We are not, and that's a good thing. But at the root of every sin lies a rebellious desire 
to possess these attributes. Our limitations are meant to point us toward a limitless God. Seeing God for who he is inspires us to worship and obey and to testify with David that the boundary lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. You see, the blind man is us. His limitations caused him to need Jesus, but he couldn't find Jesus on his own. Jesus found him and gave him sight. And then when he was punished by virtue of his association, Jesus compassionately came to him and revealed even more of himself, pursued him, pursued him. The goal of all of it is intimacy, and this is where the gospel gets practically applied, as I mentioned earlier. There's a progressive part to our relationship with God. Jesus says you'll find him when you seek him with all of your heart. That doesn't mean he's elusive. It means part of this is us saying, I want to know you more. This man's initially healed and gives sight. He's looking for words to describe his experience. Then he meets Jesus, but isn't sure it's him. And then not only encounters the Lord, but worships him. Which is something that was, would have been unthinkable to a Jew to worship another man, which is the first commandment, that, you know, that God alone be worshipped. And we Bible thumpers use to point out that the people around Jesus actually realized what he was saying, that he was the incarnate son of God. And if Jesus was a good teacher, but he wasn't God, he wouldn't have let them worship him. That would have been a violation of the scripture. So it would have been a violation of conscience. It would have been a horrible thing. But you see Jesus saying, you know who I am. And then allowing them to worship him. Carolyn and I have been married 28 years, and, and what's remarkable, and what I, one of the things I love about marriage, and one of the things I'm most grateful for about a long marriage is, is that they're, you're learning more about each other all the time. It's not like there's a finite amount of knowledge. We're getting to a place as a couple now where our experiences, even the difficult things, are drawing us into closer relationship with each other and create an even deeper need for connection where we're saying, okay, we have to have some more time together to talk through this. We have to be able to be there for each other. By his grace, uh, he has sustained our marriage for the length of its time. And what I recognize is that in any relationship, you go to new levels. There, it's always you know, exciting at first, you're engaged, then you're married, then it's first year, then it's children. But, you know, we're moving through empty nest and parenting adult kids, and all of these life challenges and experiences are, are actually pulling Carolyn and I more closely together. Ultimately, this is what God's after with you and I. He, he doesn't want you to stay where you are right now. It isn't about you getting stronger, independent of Him. It's not about you becoming something independent of him. It's not about character development. It's, it's about you knowing him. Character is the byproduct of knowing him. The fruit of the Spirit is the byproduct of your interaction with the Spirit's presence in your life. So I ask you, have, have you grown in intimacy with Jesus? And if not, 
do you recognize that your need today is to draw closely to Him, to take a step towards Him so that the byproducts of genuine encounter, namely boldness and worship, things that we see in the man born blind, that they would come. Do you need refreshment for your soul? Do you need revival for your heart? I would say as we come to the communion table today, I invite you to enter into his presence and ask him for just that. Let us pray.